Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss says that the deadly Capitol insurrection of January 6th should be memorialized with a similar gravity to how we remember 9-11, as he told MSNBC this week. We have to observe the 6th of January every single year as a time that we had a very close call to remind us that we have to be eternally vigilant because democracy is fragile. Author of nine books on the presidency, Michael Beschloss joins us to talk about his fears for democracy, next week's impeachment trial of Donald Trump, and how he sees President Biden's performance thus far. It's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Historian Michael Beschloss argues that the Capitol insurrection on January 6th was a terrorist attack that must be treated with the same gravity as September 11th. The event, quote, put our leaders and our democracy in danger. We had a close call and must never forget, he wrote recently on Twitter. Beschloss is the author of a number of books, and uh, we're going to be talking with him this hour. I should mention, in fact, that um, his most recent book is called Presidents of War. He's also a commentator for the PBS NewsHour and NBC News presidential historian and joins us to talk about the upcoming impeachment trial of former President Trump and President Joe Biden's first hundred days. And welcome back to Forum, Michael Beschloss. Oh, thank you a lot, Michael. Always love talking. And I always enjoy talking to you. And I think our listeners will find out uh, just how educational it is talking to you. Uh, let's begin by talking about the first hundred days and uh, get a little bit of an education from uh, a historian about what we're talking about here. Biden is really modeling himself after FDR in many ways in 1933, isn't he? Yeah, and he really has no choice. I mean, this is not like, you know, another president, you know, like Bill Clinton in, in 1993, who had decided, had to decide what he was going to do first with Congress or President Obama doing the same in 2009. You know, he's got to deal with, you know, to state the obvious, uh, this catastrophic pandemic, this catastrophic economy, this catastrophic situation in race, which has lasted over 400 years only, just a few more years of that, and a situation which, you know, I believe that our democracy really was in jeopardy on the 6th of January. And, you know, but for the difference of a few minutes, you could have had Speaker Nancy Pelosi of San Francisco assassinated. And the same thing true of the vice president, Mike Pence. You could have had a hostage crisis that could be lasting until this day. You could have seen calls for martial law or suspension of the 2020 election. And you could have seen a fracturing of our democracy. Thank God none of that happened. But in history, sometimes we tend to think that just because something did not quite happen, it probably would not have anyway. Just well, think if the police were a little bit slower. Yeah, I was just thinking about the fact that, uh, in fact, on Fox News, uh, Tucker Carlson has kind of underplayed all of that and uh, sort of went after you. I don't know if you're familiar with what he, this was just yesterday. Yes, my, my son told me. 
Yeah, I'd like to get your response to that, particularly sure. because he was saying that uh, it, the the analogy uh, is is historically not appropriate to talk about September 11th and uh, to talk about uh, what happened at the Capitol in the same terms. But of course, Fox has done a great deal to um, try to uh, undermine that analogy, I suppose. Right. I, I would never talk about 9-11 and the 6th of January, as you know, in the same terms. Those are two totally different events of different magnitudes, different aims done by different people. But what I did point out was one similarity, and that is that on 9-11, some of those terrorists tried to fly a plane into the Capitol building with the idea of wiping out our Congress and harming our democracy. On the 6th of January, I think the evidence is showing, and we will probably get more on this, that a president incited a crowd to attack our Congress and our Capitol with the intention of possible kidnapping and death and suspension of certain crucial elements of our democratic system. All I'm saying is this, the attack on the Capitol of 9-11, thank God, failed, although it, it killed a lot of people and it was a horrible tragedy that we should remember every single hour. The one on the 6th of January did not interrupt our democracy, but my point is it could have and I believe that every single year, we have to remember that democracy is always fragile. We always have to protect it. And we also have to protect it against would-be desperate tyrants who threaten it the way that I believe one did on the 6th of January. Well, what we're hearing now from Republican quarters is uh, President Trump had the right to free speech as opposed to you know, inciting a coup or an insurrection. In fact, there seems to be hesitancy even in using those words. They talk about it as a riot now. But also, uh, there's been a good deal of criticism from Republicans about going ahead with the impeachment trial because uh, essentially the argument is this is not constitutional. Uh, you're trying someone who is no longer in office. Well, that's a legal issue that they're going to have to resolve. But above and beyond that, I think the, the time comes that you have to draw a line. And if we have a president of the United States you know, I saw the speech of that rally. I'm certain that you saw the speech of that rally where he said, march up to the Capitol. I may march with you. And those people went in with, there was a gallows outside. There were handcuffs. There was all sorts of evidence that they intended to take prisoners and maybe even burn the mahogany boxes containing the sacred electoral votes of December 2020. You know, this, this was no little sort of circus carnival this is something that we could be talking about at this moment as something that caused our democracy to be constricted by, you know, I'm just imagining this, but a president who might have declared martial law or, you know, tried to seize certain emergency powers as Donald Trump not very subtly suggested he might do all through that presidency. Talking with Michael Beschloss, and by the way, Canada has listed the Proud Boys now as a terrorist group alongside ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And uh, let's, let's, let's talk about the Trump presidency. Uh, you were asked recently, I believe, about uh, Donald Trump's mentioning over and over again that he's the best president and has accomplished more than anybody since Lincoln and all of that. And you, right. I think you, your quip was, yeah, and I'm the king of Romania. Right, um, but, which I am not. <laughs> which you are not, yes, let's get that. Last I noticed. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you say to this argument about uh, notwithstanding, you know, the horrors of, of COVID and the Trump, uh, President Trump talking about that as uh, a fantasy and really being responsible, I think, as you and many others historians see for 
so many deaths. It's quite possible, in fact, he could have been elected if it had not been for COVID. Um, I'd I like agree. your thoughts about that. But what I really want to get to here is the kind of alternate history that we hear from those presidential historians or those backers of President Trump, Victor Davis Hanson comes to mind, who say, well, he had a strong economy, he was tough on China, he worked out uh, peace deals, he got NATO and other alliance members uh, uh, to essentially pay debts. Uh, in other words, the argument in favor of the Trump presidency. I know Victor Davis Hanson. He's at Stanford. He's a very nice man and a very intelligent man. And I can understand how he might agree with certain of the policies of the Trump presidency. And that will be true of historians as time goes on. You know, I'm not saying that every single thing that Donald Trump ever touched was absolutely wrong. I think he got pretty close to it, but I would not say that. But at the same time, to my mind, this was a president who tried to incite an insurrection. And to my mind, that insurrection could have interrupted or even conceivably ended our democracy. And from my point of view, Michael, that is about the worst thing that any president of the United States could ever do. So if you agree with me that Donald Trump did that on the 6th of January, hard for me to see how someone would not feel that he is guilty as charged of the impeachment count of doing that. And, and that will remain 50 years from now. He will be no less guilty of that 50 years from now than he is today. It's a little bit like, you know, Trump, to my mind, is a form of Richard Nixon times about 100, you know, divided by 100. And there were a lot of people who, when Nixon resigned, including Nixon, who said, 50 years from now, people will not remember Watergate. They'll remember only my opening to China or perhaps what I did with the Soviet Union or uh, ending the war in Vietnam. And I would reply, and I would reply today, they do remember the opening to China, they give him due honor, as I do, but that is never going to wipe away the fact that Richard Nixon violated his oath of office, tried to abridge our Constitution, could have wrecked democratic institutions that preserve the rights and liberties and security of our children. And, you know, you can hold both of those ideas in the same head. And Nixon was also uh, sort of a leading figure in terms of environmentalism, lest we forget. But uh, this brings up the whole question of how we evaluate our presidents. And it's always mm -hmm. been an ongoing, I suppose, moot point in you, many you people's minds. You and I have minds. talked about this for years. Uh, yeah, you and I have talked about it. And it, you right. usually, it used to be names like James Buchanan. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It, it, or it's Andrew Johnson. It's current now, hasn't it? But, uh, well, this president, this most recent president, seems to have, uh, in many people's minds, overshadowed in terms of the criteria. You mentioned the insurrection. That's and what we're handling. supposed to use history for, to understand all this. Isn't it also one of the main uh, criteria, how a president uh, comports himself, or we hope future maybe herself, uh, in a crisis situation uh, like FDR did in World War II or like Lincoln did in the Civil War? Well, the baseline entry requirement is you think about the country and not yourself. And take a look at the pandemic. I mean, from my point of view, most of the decisions that Donald Trump made during the pandemic were driven by politics. Fortunately, the, his de decision making, even in terms of self-interest, was wrong because he felt that he would be politically benefited from you know, playing down the pandemic and trying to suggest that this was not as serious as people were saying it was, suggesting at times that it was a hoax. He thought that that would keep the pandemic from being seen as such a serious problem that he should be denied re-election. 
I agree with what you were just reporting a couple minutes ago, the fact that, you know, had he done differently, had he dealt with the pandemic more frontally, we would not have the kind of a, a economy we have right now. We would not have had the enormous tragic death toll that we have to this day. And also, it is possible that Donald Trump might have gained a second term. And I believe had that happened, that could have been a death knell for our democracy. And if that had happened in November and you and I were talking today, Michael, I really believe there's at least the possibility we would be lamenting the fact that the second term administration was trying to shut down democratic institutions and elements of the press like NPR and the New York Times and book publishing houses and trying to reduce further the influence of Congress and the courts and expand the power of the presidency. We came very close to having that happen. Well, you've also said, I think, that this was a president who showed little, if any, empathy or compassion. We might add shame to that as well. Um, that's a big factor, isn't it, in establishing or at least determining criteria of what it constitutes a, a really successful yeah, presidency? You know, if, if, if you and I were talking about this 20 years ago, as we did, Michael, I, mean, I, I don't think we talked about this particular element of it, but and I might have said, you know, president should have empathy. And if I had done that, it never cr would cross my mind that we would be in a disastrous situation where we had someone who did not have empathy. I mean, any, you know, we've had a lot of people as president, some of them good, some of them less so, you know, some of them qualities of good and evil that are more dramatic than other, others. But I never thought I would ever see a situation where a president would be this selfish in dealing with a national tragedy like COVID and show so little remorse over the result of his actions. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking this hour with Michael Beschloss, presidential historian and author of Presidents of War, the epic story of uh, from 1807 to modern times. And uh, just, I guess, let me, let me invite, first of all, listeners to join us. If you have questions or comments for uh, presidential historian Michael Beschloss, please feel free to join us now. Our toll-free number is 866-733-6786. And we do welcome your involvement in the program. Again, you can join us toll-free. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. I'm wondering if we can say, since you've said that uh, this is a president largely responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of Americans who did not need to die, is this the worst president in terms of racking up and making those kinds of judgments that we've ever had? Well, I, I always, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to be so old school here, but I always cling to the idea that you've got to wait 40 or 50 years, both because you need hindsight to know how American history turned out after the president left. And also sometimes you find out information from diaries or emails or classified sources about the things that the president did, good or bad, that might alter your opinion. So, you know, that having been said, maybe we'll find out some things about Donald Trump that alter the way that we look at him today. 
But from the standpoint of 2021, you know, Michael, I used to think that we learn from history. And, you know, let's go back to 1918. Woodrow Wilson was dealing with an influenza pandemic, as you know, that hit San Francisco very hard. And in San Francisco, as I'm certain you know, there was a a major anti-vaccine league and anti-mask league, some of the same political forces that we've seen in recent times. In Wilson's case, he was told by his military and medical officials that this, you know, spreading influenza pandemic that was probably spreading from some army bases in Kansas was going to kill a lot of American soldiers who were going to fight World War I in Europe, and that if he put them on ships, they would give it to each other, and they, a lot of them would die. And if they went to Europe, they would spread it in Europe. And Wilson essentially said, send them anyway. You know, this is wartime. I don't want to be unpopular. Let's try to hush this all up. And so they all went off on the ships that were called coffin ships because so many of them did die. And ultimately, 50 million plus around the world died of this pandemic. In the United States, 675,000 people died of the pandemic. And do you know that Woodrow Wilson never once made a public statement about the pandemic, never tried to orchestrate the power of the federal government to help people to protect themselves, never discussed it or expressed remorse or even interest for the rest of his life. That's my idea of a cold-hearted president. I never thought we would see that again. Well, since you mentioned President Woodrow Wilson, he was also notoriously a bigot and uh, yes, he was. a racist. And yes, he was. How much does that figure into evaluating presidencies? I mean, you have here in San Francisco, now you have high schools that are taking names off uh, like Lincoln and Washington. Uh, Lincoln, of course, was not a slave owner. In fact, he emancipated the slaves, but calling into question, you know, his setting up a colony in Liberia for slaves, right, or, right. his treatment of indigenous people. In other words, how much do those figure into our assessment of a president and the office? And everyone has to make his own decision or her own decision or their own decision in every local situation. The worst thing would be if you had the federal government trying to do it, whether it's a Democratic or Republican president. Did, did you pick up on, this is probably too trivial for your uh, notice, Michael, but the, the National Garden of American Heroes, so-called? I did pick up on it, yes. Yeah, this is just for our audience. Just an, I don't want to spare anyone. You may, they may as well suffer along with me and you. Uh, Donald Trump, shortly before he left office, signed an executive order, and he had talked about this earlier, saying there should be a so-called National Garden of American Heroes. And he listed the heroes it should have. They were all Trump-approved people. I won't go through the list. There were some people who were fine, some that were not so fine. But the point is that you do not want the federal government making decisions like this. And the point is that whoever, whoever is president, maybe not in such a flamboyant and obvious way, but that person's moral views and that person's soul tends to generate an awful lot of policy. For instance, coming back to Woodrow Wilson, who was a terrible racist, resegregated the federal government, did awful things to black Americans. He knew that black American nurses, for instance, would suffer disproportionately from influenza if this pandemic spread. Do we think he cared? Or do we think he cared in the same way that he might have shown a little bit of compassion for you know, nurses who were not black American? You know, this is who we elected. It was a terrible mistake. You know, Michael, I was at the 
Franklin Roosevelt Library in the summer of 2018. So it was a little bit about over two years ago. And I was giving a speech and someone in the audience asked if I thought that Woodrow Wilson's name should be taken off things like the Wilson School at Princeton. And I said, yes, I do. And there was a gasp from the audience. And I was talking to my son later on. He said, are you sure that, you know, you should have said that there were some older people in the audience who seemed very upset. But the point is that in the summer of 2018, that notion for a relatively liberal audience at the Roosevelt Library in New York State was shocking. You know, things are moving so quickly that we are looking at all these things differently. And anyone who has a name on a school or anything else, you know, that is not something that's intended to be there for eternity. We may find out bad things about other figures after whom schools are named, or we may see them in a harsher light than, than we did at the time that those institutions were named for them. And if we do, uh, those names should always constantly be reevaluated, in my view. I, I live in Washington, D.C. I am condemned to have to drive around on Jefferson Davis Highway, no joke, other highways named after, con other, after Confederate generals. And you know, people may say this is there to generate debate. Well, you don't name a highway after someone out of a neutral feeling. You do it because you're suggesting to the public this is someone to be admired. How do you think historians will look, uh, let's say, a generation from now at uh, a standing ovation for Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has uh, not only fomented conspiratorial theories and spoke uh, in anti-Semitic, unmistakably anti-Semitic ways, but also who uh, has said that uh, school shootings were essentially false, never happened, in fact, harassed a survivor of a school shooting. and. Uh, perhaps above all, uh, has uh, said that Nancy Pelosi and other members of Congress should be killed because they were traitors. Depends on how our society develops, Michael. If it develops in a way that is more human with expanding rights in the way that I believe that it should be, then I think 20 or 30 years from now, people who look back on that standard ovation for this racist, anti-Semite, Islamophobe conspiracy theorist who has been elected to the House from Georgia, they will look at that act, you know, with despondency. They'll, you know, how could someone have done that? Someone who's an American leader uh, in the year 2021. That's the good scenario. The bad scenario is that our society becomes more brutal and more ugly and more rough-edged, and takes that all in stride and doesn't think there's anything wrong with that. And I again invite you, our listeners, to join us with Michael Beschloss if you have questions for. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss, you can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Number again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. Here's John, first caller up. John, welcome. Hi, how are you guys doing? Hi, John. How are you? Okay. Thank you for calling. Great. Thank you. So my comment uh, was based off a conversation about five to 10 minutes ago about having a remembrance every day on January 6th. And although I 100% agree that we should, I think our main challenge is the fact that it seems like we're not out of the woods yet. There's 40% no, of people that, I agree. Are, you know, that are looking at January 6th as something that they almost accomplished, not something to say, you know, to look at and see what we almost lost, you know, and, and, uh, that, to me, is our huge challenge going forward. 
It's a point well taken. And Michael, I suppose you, you, Michael, uh, you probably saw that uh, Reuters and a number of other news outlets uh, pointed out that many of those who were involved in that insurrection not only didn't vote, but weren't even registered. Right. And that means that these are people who are not interested in participating in our democratic system to get things that they want done, but instead they want to use violence to try to turn the, the system upside down. The tragic thing is, and I don't think you and I would have said this 25 years ago, we're in a country where sadly there are a lot of people, a lot of American citizens who hate democracy or don't understand it or are indifferent to it. And by every indication right now, those numbers are growing. And we have to make sure that we elect leaders who understand that and will use you know, every, everything at their command from their ability to talk to the American people, to, to their ability to change laws, their ability to administer the laws and lead public opinion to, to try to get people to, at, at best, understand and love democracy. And by the way, it doesn't help that we are reducing so many of our history and civics courses in the schools. But if that is impossible, uh, make sure that we use law enforcement so that you don't have situations like what happened at the Capitol on the 6th of January. I, think I look John, back on that, you know, yeah. Donald Trump was in charge of the FBI. Donald Trump was in charge of the Secret Service. He was in charge of whether the D.C. National Guard could be called or not, and he wouldn't call it. So my point is that at least now, with Joe Biden, one may disagree with him or, or agree with him, this is someone who loves democracy and has the powers of the federal government to protect the country and protect the institutions like the Congress and the Capitol if something like this happens again. Well, that could have been, as the caller suggested, an opening salvo for, because there are many out there uh, who want I a agree. civil war, would like to see I a agree. civil war. I agree. Let me bring another caller aboard here. We go to Donald next. Donald, join us. Good morning. Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. I was wondering how you feel about the fact that on that day, 140 representatives voted against certification of the election. In my opinion, that is such a grievous thing they did over an obvious lie that they constitute a standing conspiracy right in the Congress. I'm wondering if you can make comments about that. Uh, I am equally distressed as you are, Donald. And, you know, I've talked to historian friends of mine, and we talk about this. In all of our lives, we assume that if there was a president like Donald Trump who had contempt for democracy, as I believe he does, and had a lust for power, which I believe he also does, he would be restrained by senators and members of Congress of his own party. That's the way it's happened almost always in American history. It didn't happen this time. It didn't even happen on the 6th of January. So what we are, we are seeing is that those normal, those constraints that we always depended on are not there anymore. And that's why I keep on saying, you know, democracy is fragile. And everyone who's listening to us, if you want, you know, our children, and I don't mean just your own children, but the children who are important, all of us, to grow up in a free society with some semblance of democracy, this is not going to happen on its own. We're going to fight for it every single day. Our guest is Michael Beschloss, and he's the author of Presidents of War, the epic story from 1807 to modern times. 
Let me read a couple of your emails, a lot of them coming in. Randy writes, any start of the attack, Donald Trump could have called off the mob and tweeted that this is not what he meant, but he didn't. I think this is the most damning evidence against his claim that it was not his intention for the mob to attack the White House. It is also a breach of his oath of office to defend the Constitution. And Robert writes, respecting the gravity of January 6th starts with every Republican acknowledging and rejecting the core lie that inspired the attack on our democracy, namely that the ex-president won by a landslide and was cheated out of office. Failing this, they cannot expect to be treated as normal partners in our society and our democracy. And let me bring another caller on. Jim joins us from Idaho. Jim, you're on. Hello. Hi, uh, quite an honor to speak with you, Michael. And, oh, thank uh, you. Thank you for Mr. calling Beck me. Uh, I heard an interview with a fellow named Craig Unger yesterday who uh-huh. had quite significant um, if, a new um, book out. substantial evidence that KGB had their hooks into Donald Trump as far back as the 1980s. And I wondered if you had an opinion about that. Uh, I think the evidence is growing. We do not have conclusive evidence yet. If it is true, we are likely to find out now because there are likely to be commissions and legal uh, criminal investigations of various kinds. Conspiracies in life do not usually uh, stay secret if a lot of people know about them because there are a lot of motives for people to talk, especially when the person you're talking about is no longer a president of the United States with immense power of retribution. So if that is true, I expect us to find out. And I think as far as January 6th is concerned, which is connected to this, you know, every single day we're going to find out new things about this, even next week when the Senate trial begins. And I think some of the things to look for are this. How much did Donald Trump orchestrate this from behind the scenes? Did campaign resources go into that rally that we saw on TV? What connections were there between Trump's entourage and the people who marched into the Capitol uh, with those handcuffs and the gallows and the rest of it? Or were they just doing that on their own? How much was this actually orchestrated in advance or how much of it was spontaneous? I have my suspicions, but at this moment, the jury is still out. But I think there is at least the possibility, not proven yet, but we have to keep our minds open to the possibility that this was his plan. He was desperate to hold on to office because he was worried that he would be vulnerable to severe financial problems and legal problems. So he wanted immunity in a second term. To hold on to office, he knowingly lied and claimed that he was elected for a second term, which he knows he was not. He orchestrated some kind of event on the 6th of January, which we saw him do on Twitter, saying it will be wild, perhaps thinking that it just might get out of control and maybe things might bounce in a direction that might allow him to say that he did win the election and he was having himself sworn in for a second term on the 20th of January. What I've just said goes beyond what we have evidence for yet. We may never get it, but we've got to keep our eyes open. But I want to bring attention just for a moment, though, back, Michael, to this argument that we're hearing that uh, it's inappropriate constitutionally to try a president once he's out of office. Isn't there, I mean, historically, I believe, uh, actually, former General of Bengal, Warren Hastings from England, was impeached after he left office. But don't we have 
evidence also of governor. In fact, wasn't Thomas Jefferson impeached in Virginia? He was acquitted, but he was impeached after he right, left office. Right, on a state level. Yeah, what I go back on the national level, Michael, too, is, uh, as you will remember, August of 1974. Richard Nixon was out of office, 9th of August, got out of his helicopter, flew on Air Force One back to California. Despite the fact that he had resigned, the House of Representatives, which had been girding to vote on impeachment one way or the other, decided let's have a vote on impeachment anyway so we can put ourselves on the record for all time as saying that had Nixon not resigned, he would have been impeached. So they had the vote. Uh, overwhelmingly, they said that if Nixon had come up for an impeachment vote, he would have been impeached. And their intention was that by doing that, they would prevent Nixon from the re for the rest of his life from saying, I didn't do anything that other presidents did not do, and therefore I was railroaded, and I didn't deserve to be driven out of office, and I'm really okay. Uh, despite their doing that, that is exactly what he claimed. And so for a lot of people who perhaps were not there in 1974 or are not very aware, they may think that Nixon didn't do anything wrong, that Roosevelt or Johnson or Kennedy did wrong, which was Nixon's argument. Again, our guest is Michael Beschloss, and we're going to go to a quick break here for just about 60 seconds. We'll return and we'll try to get to as many of your calls and emails as we can, time permitting. Again, if you have questions for presidential historian Michael Beschloss, you can join us toll free at 866-733-6786. He's the author of Presidents of War, the Epic Story from 1807 to Modern Times, and this is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with Michael Beschloss, presidential historian and author of Presidents of War. And let me go to a question here from a listener named Hussam for you, Michael. He says, what can the Biden administration do to limit the powers of future presidents like Trump? That's uh, an absolutely perfect question. Thank you. Uh, what it should do is suggest legislation to Congress that will lock the door on some of the things that Trump was able to do. Uh, one, one good thing about the Trump presidency for four years is it was like sort of a stress test of the presidency and its ability to harm people. You know, it showed us all the ways that an amoral, unscrupulous uh, president could grab power and use it in ways that I believe were not anticipated by the founders because the founders, when they wrote the Constitution, they didn't really write very much about what a president should do or should not do because they knew that the first president of the United States was going to be George Washington. And they would say, you know, let George Washington take care of this. And every later president will operate according to George Washington's example. They didn't anticipate that the 45th president would be someone who probably has barely heard of George Washington or doesn't know very much about him. So all I'm saying is that in 1975, Democrats in Congress who were elected uh, overwhelmingly in response to Nixon's resignation and Watergate said, 
let's look at laws that we can pass to make sure that Watergate will never ever happen again. And they did that. It's now the responsibility of a democratic Congress in partnership with a democratic president to do the same thing. And we bring on another caller. Gary, join us. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, hello, Michael and Michael. Good to talk Hi. to you this morning. Uh, attack Hi. of Michael's um, this morning. That's right. You, uh, sounds like a sports call-in show, Michael right, and Mike, right. or something like that. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to talk about some comment that was made a little bit earlier where um, we can frame the, the long-term analysis of Trump's presidency in light of some of the other things that have occurred or he achieved, whether it's China or NATO. Um, I think Michelle Obama made the point, uh, maybe during the convention or at other times, that, uh, that, that the presidency reveals character. And with Trump, we have this opportunity to see how he responded to an unexpected situation. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about or hear your comments on, you know, uh, Kennedy with Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, Eisenhower even with, so let's say, Sputnik or Bush with 9-11, that we have a chance to see what this leader does when things don't go to plan. And isn't that truly a way that we can judge how good of a leader that person is? I, I am right with you. you. You look at a leader under pressure and crisis and you begin to see who he or she is. And that is particularly true in the presidency. It's what we mean by you leadership, Kennedy. isn't it? <laughs> uh, absolutely. You see what the person's morality is. You see what kind of choices that they will make. And the most basic choice that almost all of them have made in American history is that when you're confronted with a crisis like the pandemic or the economy or the crisis over race, which has been a 400-year crisis, but flared up for some people last summer who perhaps were not aware of this, uh, you have a president reaching into his or her whole, whole, one day her soul and saying, you know, I have to make a lot, there are a lot of things I have to do. This is the most important. You find out really who they are. What we never anticipated that was that when you had something like the pandemic, just to give you a silly example of this, uh, March 2020 was about the first month that the pandemic began to get really bad. I think our listeners will not disagree with that. And go back to what Donald Trump might have done that month, he didn't do it. His wife, and I don't want, you know, she was not elected, but, you know, oftentimes first ladies or first spouses expect, uh, express the moral views of an administration. It turns out that she spent the month of March in 2020 building something called a tennis pavilion on the White House lawn next to the tennis court. And she said that presidential families need places to relax and unwind. And she had herself photographed in a hard hat as if she's there supervising the building of some 90-story building. And she would tweet out pictures of this project as it went on at the same time that people were dying. I know it's not a big example, but it's a visual example that gives you an idea of what these people were doing and thinking. Sort of terrible optics, uh, just on the face of it. Uh, let me bring another caller in, and here's another Michael. Michael joins us. Good morning. Yes, good morning. It's a pleasure to speak with both of you, and Michael, uh, I wish you were We, we, we both time. agree that you have a wonderful first name. Uh, hey, in the 70s, in the back of Rolling Stone, there was an advertisement for a Mike's of America club. Um, but my question, Mr. Beschloss, is one thing that's concerned me is the, is the – uh, 
the kind of snowball effect of religion in politics, would you, and I'm confused about that, would you speak to the separation of church and state? Uh, something that was a founding ideal of our country and has remained so and has been enforced even by some of the most religious presidents we have ever had. Case in point, Harry Truman. You know, many presidents pretend to be more religious than they really are. For instance, Nixon had prayer services at the White House, uh, and it turns out that you know he just was not very religious. He pretended to be more observant than he was. His wife was an agnostic or even an atheist, which was not uh, known at the time. Uh, normally, that's what you see in politics. In Truman's case, Truman felt so strongly about separating church and state that he felt he could conceal how strongly he felt about the Bible and how much his Baptist faith had to do with the decisions that he was making. Truman said, if you hear a politician praying too loud, go home and lock your smokehouse. Because especially growing up in Missouri, he had seen an awful lot of politicians who would exploit religion for their own benefit. So my point would be that if you're looking at leaders in history, some of the best leaders we've ever had, not all, but some of them, have been people who had deep religious faith and, for instance, read the Bible all the time. That's wonderful. It gave them a moral system, helped them to make decisions that benefited everyone. But at the same time, they understood that they were operating in a country that was founded in part on the right to believe anything we want or nothing at all. I'm probably familiar with Stanford uh, historian, political scientist, Jack Rakoff. Yes. Yeah, I sure. think he's got a new book out, in fact, about church and state. Uh, Absolutely. Anxious to get to it. Yes. Let me read some more, anxious to get to some more emails here, too. Chris writes, there's an increasing trend toward an imperial presidency <coughs> acting mainly through executive orders. It seems antithetical to the founding principles, but it is now the only, is it now the only way our government can function? Well, the problem is that if you've got conflict between Congress and a president that is immobilizing, it's inevitable, and James Madison would expect this if he were here. Uh, he would say that that will force presidents to do things like issue unilateral orders because they'll be frustrated and they will want to get things done. At least those orders are legal, and if they're not legal, they're going to be struck down by our legal system. I think what I'm worried about more is a president like Donald Trump who does things that are in the gray zone. For instance, after the election, he put loyalists in the Defense Department. And he told the Justice Department he, that they should do things that would further infringe on the rule of law even further than things he had done for the previous four years. If you've got a president who has no respect for our democratic system or the need of a president to show self-restraint, almost anything is on the table. And all I'm saying is we've got to assume that we're going to have another would-be tyrant again who is elected president. We've got to make sure that that person is on, under much more constraint than Donald Trump ever was. A question from a listener. I want to go to more calls here, but a listener named Rachel sends in this email. She says, I was moved to tears at the scene in Spielberg's Lincoln when Grant tipped his hat to Lee at the end of the war and let him go. I've been rethinking this compassionate stance done on Lincoln's order to uplift, not punish. Given subsequent history, was this a mistake? Does history point to the need for more punitive process when internal divisions occur? Well, the interesting thing is that you know I know people who are 
students of the Civil War in Reconstruction, I'm not going to mention any names, but things that I've heard from fellow historians and I've never expected to hear, which is them saying, and this is them, not me, because they're, this is what they study. It's something I'm interested in, but I've not studied to the degree that they do. Maybe we were wrong about Lincoln. Maybe it was not the right idea to you know, work so hard to unify the country quickly and achieve reconciliation with the South. Maybe there should have been a harsher reconstruction to make sure that racism and Jim Crow would not run rampant for the next century plus as it did. That's why history is so interesting because even questions like this that seem for many people just a couple of years ago to be settled, we're now living in a time that people are asking these new questions again. A related question from a listener named Butch who says, when the trials happened for the participants of the January 6th Capitol riots, what do you think the motivations of the accused will be revealed? Do you foresee harsh sentences being handed down? Uh, I think they have to be because what kind of a society do we live in if people invade Congress with weapons, with handcuffs, with all sorts of other things and are not punished? And by the way, another question there is, why did law, law enforcement let those people through police lines? And why were some of them told to stand down? All these are questions that we really do not know about yet. So all I would say is let's stay tuned, but it is of the highest national priority that we find out everything that happened here. And especially if there are signs of a president you know, organizing a conspiracy to keep office against the constitution uh, as a result of chaos and violence that day, that's something that we are all going to have to think very hard about. And the argument that this will just, uh, you're hearing from Republican quarters, divide us and uh, exacerbate the divisions that already exist and we need to get on with the business of government? I'm all for unity in this country. I'm all for getting things done, but I am also all for justice and that is absolutely just as important. And again, our guest is Michael Beschloss and uh, I want to just remind you that we are talking about a whole range of issues, and you are certainly welcome uh, to be part of this program. Uh, but we are also uh, looking at the ways to support this radio station, and this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. I want to remind you that you can support this radio station and I urge you to do that. For more information about how to do that, you simply go to kqed.org. And we're going to go to uh, just another comment here before... Uh, I break for a minute. Uh, you think, uh, well, lots of questions being raised about the Republican Party and the Electoral College, and uh, we can get into those as well with uh, Michael Beschloss, but uh, first want to remind you that this is a pledge period, and I hope you will support this radio station. You're listening to KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. Well, let's take those up as we might as well, Michael. We've got a little time left here, but talking about Great. the Electoral College, what do you foresee? Uh, okay, good. How much time do we have left, Mike? <laughs> well, we've got minutes left, but you know the, the reality is. I, I know you want me to give a long written statement in another language, right? Can we can we actually move on that front? Let me just let, put it uh, right. on that level. Okay. Okay. Uh, we're we're live now, Michael. I'm sorry. Oh, we are. Yeah. Uh, I think we can move on that front. The problem is that. Once you begin amending the Constitution, you've got a lot of other people who are going to get into the act with all sorts of other aims. So, you know, if, if I were a philosopher monarch, would I change the Electoral College? Yes, I would. 
our democracy cannot stand many more elections when the obvious intent of the voters is thwarted by a system that was entered, invented over 200 years ago and makes people feel very much disenfranchised. But the problem is that our process for changing the Constitution, uh, it always makes the rest of the Constitution vulnerable as well. And let me bring another caller on. Dorian joins us. Dorian, welcome. You're on the program. Good Hi. Um, I was curious if you believe, first of all, I love you guys. I've got to say that. But anyway, uh, if you oh, believe it's so a vote for the impeachment Michael is trial, the best. <laughs> Both of you are wonderful, but yes, Michael is the best. Um, do you believe that if the votes could be anonymous for the impeachment trial, that he would indeed, he, I don't even like to say his name, would be impeached? And because it seems to me that the only thing that drives a lot of these Republicans is being reelected and nothing else seems to matter. Totally right. And let's say we were talking 10 years ago, the three of us, and you had said, Imagine a situation where a president incites an insurrection that threatens assassination and hostage-taking, interruption of an election, perhaps infringement on our democracy. Would members of the Senate of his own party vote to convict a president who did that? I think we probably would have said yes. So mm -hmm. the point is, if we're in a situation where even that will not move them without a secret ballot, we are in real trouble. You know, right. seats in the Senate are not an entitlement. The founders thought that, you know, people would go in and serve for a term or two and go back to their plow on the farm. We're in a horrible situation where these people are so desperate to hold up onto office that they will agree to almost anything. And that includes a standing ovation for Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, of Georgia. And I thank you for the call, Laura. Here's uh, actually a related question. A listener, Mike, writes, I'm a progressive who's generally liberal, highly idealist, brother fought and died in Iraq. How do good faith people on the left deal with Americans on the right who seem devoid of ideals? Well, thank you for your brother's service. Uh, the best thing we can do for our future, I believe, is to make sure that at least everyone in our country understands democracy and in a lot of schools, and this is not the fault of the teachers because this is not their choice, you know, budgets, you know, other things, local school boards, the result is that there are probably fewer civics classes, probably fewer history classes than there used to be. And if you don't teach people, especially as children, how important a democracy is and how you have to work to protect it, we shouldn't be surprised if as adults, we see a growing number of people who you know, may not even necessarily hate democracy, just don't get it and are indifferent and don't don't see this as something that you should sacrifice to preserve. I want to read some more comments that are coming in before we have to say goodbye. Roberto writes, for me, the lionizations of Reagan, including by Obama, seem to demonstrate that even Donald Trump will be lionized upon death. Reagan's cabinet could illegally sell weapons to Iran, send cash to rebels attempting to overthrow a democratically elected, albeit socialist regime, and import cocaine to the U.S., and he can still be honored upon his death. And Curtis writes another sort of foreboding uh, email here when he writes, Trumpism isn't over. There are smarter and more sophisticated fascist right-wing politicians making their way through the ranks with little or no pushback by the GOP. Uh, and um, here's Rick who asks, uh, can you talk about what's happening with the Republican Party? Is there any historical equivalent that might help us understand? Uh, there isn't. 
Uh, you would think that the Republican Party at a minimum would have stood up against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and racism and authoritarianism. And with that standing ovation, I want to use just one, one data point to make the point, but it doesn't give anyone very much hope. So the point is that all of us who love democracy and want to protect our families and our children and our beloved country, this is going to be harder than it may have seemed five years ago, and every single one of us has to do our share. On that note of challenge and uh, a very important one, Michael Bessos, always a pleasure to talk with you and a privilege. Loved Thank it, you. Michael. Now, I, I, I said coming on, I, I love to come on, but not because I approve of your leaving this show. I'm looking forward to talking with you in other venues very much. I look forward to that as well. And thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you. Thank you a lot. It's Michael Beschloss, and uh, his newest book is called Presidents of War. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11. An hour is repeated, 10 to 11 in the evening. You can always let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. Thanks to all of you, and please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Desert Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.